Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And Happy New Year to all of you listening from places like Rochester, New York, Hohokus, New Jersey, Houston, Texas, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, Tel Aviv, Israel, and Helsinki, Finland. Oh, I bet it is so cold in Helsinki right now. Well, thanks for listening. And as always, don't forget to smash that follow button and tell your friends about the show. And I got to say, it feels good to be back here after taking a few weeks off. And I hope you had some quality time with friends and family over the holidays as well. And I know things aren't easy for anyone right now, and we don't need to get into all of that, but I wish you a happy and healthy 2022. And I've got some cool stuff coming up on the podcast. So thanks for being here. And by the way, I haven't been completely idle lately. I've booked some pretty interesting guests that are coming up, and I've been editing some new videos for the YouTube channel. So things are rolling right along here. And today I've got a great conversation for you with a guy named Bobby Green. Now, Bobby does so much cool stuff, I don't know where he gets his energy, but check this out. First, he's the conceptual genius behind the 1933 Group, which is a collection of 11 historic Los Angeles bars and restaurants, even a vintage bowling alley, and they each have a great period theme to every property, right? So, Bobby told me the story behind his business empire, which, as you'll hear, is really tied closely with some incredible automotive history and development of the city of L.A., And Bobby is also a hot rodder, and he runs his belly tank racer at Bonneville, and he's also the creator of the Old Crow Speed Shop, which is really kind of his tribute to the early history of American racing and hot rodding. And by the way, this whole interview is also going to be over on the Horsepower Heritage YouTube channel shortly, so subscribe over there because you've got to see his inner sanctum. It was like stepping back in time to the early 1930s. Really cool. So this one's got hot rods, salt racing, early IndyCar history, even a barn find Porsche 550 Spider. That's a great story. So stay tuned for my interview with Bobby Green from the Old Crow Speed Shop. And that's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Maybe you can't afford that Shelby 289 Cobra or that Porsche 356 Speedster, but having a scale model on the shelf is easy with Model Citizen Diecast. They stock collector-grade scale models in 143rd scale, 118th scale, and even the massive 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. And if you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout, they'll give you 10% off your order. Limitations apply. Just visit ModelCitizenDieCast.com and check out their great selection. From race cars to classic cars and everything in between. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Well, here we are at the Old Crow Speed Shop with Bobby Green, the proprietor. Bobby, thanks for having us. This place is amazing, and I understand you just moved here after being in Burbank for about 15 years. Yeah, well, Maurice, thanks for coming by. Absolutely. It's good to see you. Thank you. Yeah, well, I, I, I got the place in 2016, but it took a year to remodel. It took a couple of years to move in. Sure. <laughs> we, yeah. we, luckily, we had, uh, we had Burbank to slowly kind of transition from right. while we did it. So, yeah. Right. And then the pandemic hit. I haven't really done any parties or anything here. So, you're one of the few that have seen it. Well, everywhere you look... I mean, it's overwhelming. Yeah, it was a lot of U-Haul moves. I mean, right. luckily, it's only 20 minutes down the highway. Right. And you had you were able to do it gradually, obviously. Yeah, and so, gradually. That's right. the key. Well, this yeah. is 
literally a lifetime's worth of collecting. I know this isn't everything. You've kind of let things go over the years and you've, you've kept what you really cherish. Yeah. But- well, I've learned some valuable lessons with Burbank. One is no matter how big of a space I, someone gives me, I will fill it. Right. And that's not a good thing. Not, you know what I mean? Yeah. Especially if you have to move. That's not a good thing. So, yeah, I had a lot of like, you know, multiples and multiples of parts, you know, engines and parts. It you know, it's one of those things like, well, I might as well keep this on the back shelf because I have room for it. I might need it one day or someone will need it. So you end up with like a giant stockpile of just stuff and stuff that's replaceable. Nothing, you know, flathead water pumps or, or, you know, heads or something like that. But right. so when I had to leave Burbank, I just had giant yard sales. Just come take the stuff away for cheap. Just get it into hand so it doesn't have to get scrapped. Because right. so much gets scrapped with situations like that. Yeah, you kind of get forced in a corner where uh, you've got nowhere to put it mm-hmm. and you've got no time to sort it or really make those decisions other than, okay, put it in the bin. Exactly. Yeah. So I got it all into the hands of other hoarders. Now it's their, it's their problem now, not <laughs> mine. And so I just, I just, my goal was I'm just going to keep like the really good stuff, the really yeah. rare stuff that you can't really re- replace easily. Well, and we'll have to talk about some of this stuff in here, but just so people know, this is a, a converted church mm-hmm. built in what, church. the 30s? In the 20s. In the 20s. Yeah, built in the 20s. Okay. Yeah, sadly, the preacher had died, uh-huh. and the kids didn't want to keep it going, okay. and so it went on the market. And so I was looking to buy a shop, you know, so I could move out of Burbank, mm-hmm. and shop space in LA is just insane, pricing-wise, just nuts. And so this happened to be much more reasonable, I think. And it was one of those situations I fall into a lot where um, people don't have a vision for things. They can't like see beyond what it is, Mm -hmm. you know? And luckily I can see far beyond what it is. Give me a anything, you know, give me a, a high school and I, and I'll turn it into a shop or something cool. Uh, so a church is perfect. And I, I mean, I remember growing up as a teenager thinking, man, it'd be really cool to get a church and just live in it. Yeah. You know, why not? Absolutely. Old churches, old firehouses. Mm-hmm. Firehouses for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because, uh, first of all, people are, some people are wondering what's Old Crow Speed Shop? Mm-hmm. And and we can talk about also kind of the the genesis of your automotive fascination and the particular time period that you're really interested in, which is roughly the turn of the 20th century to about 1950, right? Mm-hmm. I'd say yeah. so. Yeah, that's yeah. a perfect uh, perfect place to put it. So Old Crow started as the name of the belly tank that I built for Bonneville, and. What I try to do with anything is is create a meaning. You know, I don't like just having mindless names or even just mindless things in a collection without there being some sort of like deeper meaning to them, you know. So I was building this car and the car's made from a World War II auxiliary gas tank that would hang below an aircraft fighter plane. Um, They would use those to get more fuel so they could fly further and then they would drop them they call them drop tanks too because they would just drop them from the bottom of the plane but they were really aerodynamic right so the government spent 
millions of dollars in the 40s to create these aerodynamic pods. And then you've got these teenagers that go to World War II who are hot rodders. They, they see these pods, you know, and there were some guys before the war that were hammering out bodies for their hot rods to be really streamlined. A uh, ton of work, obviously. You're hand-forming this whole thing. Well, they go to World War II, they see this thing that looked just like Bob Rufi or one of these guys had made for their car, and they're like, I'm going to get one of those after the war and, and make a car out of it. So that's how the belly tank or drop tank came to be a race car. Sure, and after the war, war surplus, they were a dime a dozen. They were like 20 bucks. Yeah. Yeah, and you could buy them by the stack, especially here in... Burbank, you know, they were, you know, because Lockheed. Lockheed was right there. So right. the Lockheed had the best tank. It was the P-38 aircraft. So I wanted to build one. I wanted to build one to kind of recreate or honor my heroes, mm-hmm. you know, that I was looking at in old books and old black and white photos and whatnot. So, so I'm building this car and I'm thinking, you know, every good car back then had a name. You know, people don't really name their cars so much anymore, but it was a tradition for a long time. So I wanted to name the car. Um, as you know, I'm in the bar business. Right. So I'm looking at this tank and I'm thinking, what can I name this car? What, what, what has some meaning? You know, now there was a famous aircraft in World War II flown by Bud Anderson called the Old Crow. It was a P 51 Mustang. Same squadron as Chuck Yeager. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I think he was the most decorated fighter pilot of World War II. He's still alive. He lives up in Auburn, California. He's in his 90s. Um, So the Old Crow was named by him after whiskey, the Old Crow whiskey, right? So, And, of course, I sell Old Crow whiskey in the bar. Naturally. So what a perfect combination, right? A car built from a World War II plane uh, paid for by the sale of whiskey. (laughs) <laughs> right. So yeah. that's what it meant to me. Like, I'm going to name this car the old crow. And it also tells stories. Like whenever you do something like that, you're passing on a legacy. You're passing on a story about Bud, about his plane, about World War II, about whiskey. And we're sitting here talking about it today. Right. You know, 20 years later. And it's Americana. It's Americana. Exactly. And Americana, we have so many good stories. Yeah, yeah, we don't want those to disappear. Exactly. So the old crow, and, and the, I built this in a tiny garage in my house, you know, and so we started racing it. Me and friends started racing the car and setting some records, having a lot of fun. We raced vintage four cylinders. So Model A engines, basically. Um, and had a blast. Been racing for years. So got a chance to get this shop in Burbank and the price was right. It was a it was a bitchin' old building. I mean, it was like an old Quonset hut kind mm-hmm. of, you know, tin roof, uh, wood wood framed, and uh, it was one of those things. Like, what do I name the shop? Well, you know, everyone knew the car, so I just named it after the car. Perfect. Yeah. Now, was the shop intended as kind of your your storage space and sort of a place to play, or did you? go into it with a mind to making it a business? Well, I kind of want, I didn't necessarily want to make it a full business. I would, I, I, I thought maybe me and friends could, could do little side jobs, but I want it to be more of like an all purpose place where me and friends could work on cars. Um, 
but we could also have a lot of parties. We could have a little museum slash speed shop where we could sell vintage parts. Um, so it was your clubhouse. Yeah, it was a clubhouse. It was, but really, just purely selfishly, it was like I need way more space than I have in my little garage now. I'm my. I want to build some more cars. I want to do this. I want to do that. So it was just a space to do that. But then it turned into so much more. It turned into kind of a living history shop, a place that people wanted to visit, uh, a place that we could do you know, photo shoots or just anything creative that we could think of. You know, I'd give it to friends for music videos. We would just do all kinds of fun stuff there. Um, and that's what it that's what it became and it, it grew into like it grew itself into a brand is is really it was never an intention oh let's create a brand or that's how, that's how it happened well but you know you laid the groundwork that was just a natural progression into a brand i if suppose you, if yeah you, if you ask me yeah, yeah i suppose maybe in hindsight i never thought of it that way though yeah You've lived in Southern California most of your life, but you actually originally were from Oklahoma, right? Mm-hmm. Born there. Moved here when I was 10. We had a farm. But then my dad was an artist. Mm-hmm. So he started a stained glass company uh, and did a lot of churches in the Midwest, uh, stained glass. So I, w- I grew up, I realized later in life, I grew up learning from my p- my parents and my peers that you just work for yourself. This is what you do. Like no one in my family had a job ever. It would, they all worked for themselves, whether they were farmers or, or stained glass business or whatever. So I just grew up thinking that was the normal thing to do. Um, which kind of bit me in the butt when I, when I started trying to get a job, you know, later in life. I think I had a job at like 17 and 18 and I, I was basically fired from every single job I had. <laughs> every job I was fired from. And so um, that's why I just had to start my own business. Right. And, I, and I did in my early 20s. Now you were in the coffee business originally, right? Yeah, yeah, opened a coffee house. Okay. Yeah. So I was, I was going to follow kind of my dad. I, I did a lot of art as a kid. My dad put me in like a drawing class when I was five years old. I was just... Art was just what I wanted to do. And then I started kind of refining it like, well, do I want to do architecture? Do I want to do uh, maybe product design or, or something like that? And so I was taking all kinds of design classes and stuff and doing some interior stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was going to go to Art Center and do environmental design. Environmental design is really neat because it's kind of like you're designing environments, Right. You know, like Disneyland was done by environmental designers. Um, so it's, it's beyond just designing a thing. Uh, but then the opportunity came up to, to buy, (laughs) buy this little coffee house from the guy who had fired me several years prior. (laughs) He called me. So I was working in coffee houses, right? And I was hanging out with artists, you know, we were having art shows and and whatnot. And and of course I was fired from one and I would just move to a different coffee house and eventually get fired. Uh, And uh, the guy called me one day and he said, hey, you know, um, you and your friends always said you could do a better job than me. Uh, Do you want to buy me out? That's exactly what he said. Wow. And I said, let me call you right back. You know, so I called some friends and said, hey, uh, let's try to get some money together and buy this guy out. You know? Perfect. So I sold a car. Okay. Again, an old car. I had a Nash Metropolitan. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And uh, 
I think I bought it for like 50 bucks because mm-hmm. it had no transmission. And then I always go to Bob's Big Boy. Right. Hang out. It, this was in, not in Burbank. It was the previous location, like okay. Reseda or something. And uh, I was telling somebody, hey, I got a Nash Metropolitan. I need a transmission. And they go, oh, well, go talk to Metro Bob. He's right <laughs> over there. I'm like, okay. So I went talk to Metro Bob. He's like, oh, yeah, I got one on the side of the house. 20 bucks. Perfect. I'm like, okay, I'll come get it. Put it in, you know. Anyway, I sold the thing for like $3,500. And, and that was the money that me and friends pooled together. And we bought this little coffee house. Nice. And yeah. um, so how do we get from coffee to whiskey? Well, it, it's a weird, uh, it seems odd now, right? But back then, early 90s, this is pre-Starbucks days, right? Can you even imagine that now? I know. I mean, I know. Exactly. So coffee houses at the time were more like little bars. Like people would hang out all night long. Sure. Play chess, backgammon. Live music. Live music, have art shows, drink coffee. It was very bohemian. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of, it was, it was like a bar for the under 21 crowd. I get all the college kids. And so it was a real natural progression at the time. So I was 23 when I opened the coffee house. I'm going to bars. I'm, I'm going to Hollywood, hitting all the cool spots and, and thinking, this is so cool. This is just like what I'm doing, except they actually could make money because <laughs> we didn't make any money, right. but we met a lot of cool people. Now you're so, building a network. Sure. You're learning yeah, yeah. the business. You're mm-hmm. learning what to do and what not to do. It was business college for sure. It was yeah. trial by fire. Mm-hmm. Six years of just have, figure it out. Yeah. yeah. And so that was my business college. So I, I spent years wanting to open a bar, you know, mm-hmm. running the coffee house, meeting people. I, I made a little pitch deck book uh, with the concept of this log cabin bar vintage style log cabin bar kind of a northwoods theme mm-hmm. yeah. yeah which is oddly enough i didn't even know about northwoods back then which okay. is so funny other than driving to disneyland and seeing the the snow on the roof um but yeah it was that vibe it was like and i knew all my friends would be into it because i i knew everybody in the bar scene as a 20 something year old you know yeah. and so it took me several years to find investors because i didn't have i couldn't do it on my own and i finally found Two guys who are still my partners today, believe it or not, 22, 23 years later. That's rare. Mm-hmm. Very rare. Very rare. Well, you proved yourself early on and you just kind of took one step at a time. And now the 1933 group, which is your company, mm-hmm. has 11 different hospitality properties. They all have a distinctive theme. Mm-hmm. They're all historically significant to Los Angeles. So there's an element, of, a huge element of preservation. And you're passing along something that uh, would otherwise have been lost. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm so fortunate that I could find a way to bring my own personal passions for saving history, even from a completely selfish way, you know, like this place is so cool. I love it so much, you know, and then I get a chance to share it, save it, restore it, share it with the world Mm -hmm. and then meet all those like-minded people. Yeah. Do you have a favorite of all of your bars? No, I did for years, for years and years. My favorite was always the first one, 
mm-hmm. the Bigfoot Lodge, mm-hmm. because that's the one that kind of launched, you know, who we are, what we do, and what we're going to do. Um, but it, I think that changed by the time the Idle Hour came around, mm-hmm. because prior to the Idle Hour, we were kind of, I guess, recreating places or creating places that could have been in L.A. or should have been in L.A. or something like that. Uh, whereas the Idle Hour was truly a, a place to save and restore, now, a historical place. Now, the Idle Hour is a giant beer barrel, right? Yeah, That's, or whiskey barrel. Or whiskey barrel. Yeah, it's a giant wooden barrel, two stories tall. Wow. Yeah. And at one time, believe it or not, there were as many as 11 or 12 barrels in Los Angeles. Wow. Different owners, just that was a really popular uh, theme style to pick as a building. Yeah. yeah. Now, this is called programmatic architecture, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, programmatic, sometimes mimicry architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it basically was spawned by the automobile which is the, the greatest part about it. Okay, good. You know, so this is interesting history. It, it, it is interesting history, especially for if you're a car person. Right. You know, so before the Model T was in everybody's garage, you probably had a bicycle or a horse or a buggy, you know, and, or you walked. And so all these businesses everywhere uh, were just getting people walking by. So all you needed was a little sign that said shoemaker. You know, mm-hmm. or, or, or tap room. You'd hang your shingle. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But once cars started whizzing by at 25 miles an hour, then business owners were freaking out. And these people who had cars were going much further out of town, further on dirt roads than they ever did before. So there was a new opportunity to create businesses a little further away. And that's what made the city grow. Um, and Los Angeles, a lot of people don't know, is the only city in America designed around the automobile. The automobile completely shaped what we have is this giant grid of a city. Other cities are all like European style and, mm-hmm. and, and weird, but LA is a giant grid. And so that guys were opening businesses and they wanted the, the motorists to see their business from a block away. So right. that was the whole point. And back then, you could build anything you want. We had this kind of, as Americans, we had this kind of uh, crazy can-do attitude. You know, like it, anything goes, especially Los Angeles. Right. It was the city of anything goes, um, especially with the movie industry. Absolutely. You know, I mean, imagine driving down the street and suddenly you see the Ben-Hur set or you see, you know, Egypt's uh, pyramids uh, pyramids and sphinxes. I mean, this started becoming commonplace. So why not build, why not build your restaurant to look like a giant hat Mm -hmm. uh, or a giant dog or whatever you liked Mm -hmm. uh, that would stand out. And that's how it became a trend. And we had hundreds of them around LA. My friend Jim Hyman did an amazing book, California Crazy. And it's it's a big, heavy book filled with images of these buildings. And you don't know, you don't realize how many there were until you start looking through this book. There were a lot. But anyway, let's talk about cars. Yeah, yeah. So let me look at my notes. Okay, so, so over the lifespan of Old Crow, a lot of cars have come in and out. You've done restoration work and preservation work. You've worked on your own stuff, but you've mm-hmm. also taken some commissions, right? 
a few, uh, or I'll or I'll get something that I know I'm. We're just gonna sell, right? You know. And so I know that you're really intent on preserving, like period builds and so forth. How do you go about that? Because it's really easy to erase history when you're working on a car that's maybe uh, had a rough life or needs uh, needs quite a bit of rehabilitation. So. True. I guess it, it, it's the same approach I take with with the architecture, um, and I, I think that my my experience with restoring cars has helped me so much with restoring a building or say a historical business but you have to start with a lot of research a lot of pictures a lot of searching for photos and images i mean pictures tell a thousand words like they say so i'll do tons and tons of just visual research and of course if there's any written research we'll do a lot of that as well um, and then you also have to have a good sense of materials and build quality of the era. That's another thing. Uh, and I see, I see people screwing up a lot, not only cars, also with, with buildings or architecture, because they're using modern materials. So they're using something that stands out as that would never have been done at the time. So I'll ask myself that question a lot. If I want to do something to to something, I'd say, would this have been done at that time? And then if you have to answer that question and say, no, it wouldn't, but it would have been done this way. They would have used this material. They would have used that material. Um, and and luckily, you know, in the in the world of hot rotting, um, there's been a huge group of traditional youngsters have grown out of the hobby have kind of grown out of the excess of the 80s and swung back into the 90s where they said, no, no, let's let's really look at what these guys were doing and do it exactly the way they were doing it. And uh, and I did a lot of that by reaching out to older people, you know, meeting the guys that were in their 80s who had done it in the 40s and and spend hours with them like well what did you do for the steering box and what did you do you know for the drag link and did you run it under this or over that what about your brakes how did you make the brakes better and so all you have to do is just listen and like emulate i'm glad you mentioned that because you know in the 80s and into the 90s really the hot rod sort of became the street rod. Mm-hmm. And we had all that neon and those hot colors and modern wheels and tons of chrome. And they, they became really pretty, but it was not about racing or going fast so much as it was about cruising and looking really good. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's funny, you know, hot rodding uh, has just gone through these weird ups and downs. You know, you had the whole 60s ed roth show car craze um uh, which, which i i can appreciate i'm not a huge fan of uh i'm not a, really a huge fan of excess right uh you know i love and appreciate mid-century modern but it's just not my thing you know mm-hmm. it's i i i'm not the so much of the let's take a rocket to the moon type of guy i'm more of like no let's just you know build something out of nothing in the garage kind of a guy so uh I tend to really appreciate the nuances of pre-war design because it was a bit more function over form or a lot more function over form. Sure. Why waste money on 
candy paint mm-hmm. when you can get triple deuces. Exactly. Right? When you can go faster. Yeah. Yeah. This, let's just make it go fast. Who, who cares really what it looks like? Yeah. 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 So I, I kind of appreciate that a lot more than the, the excess of the show car era, especially of the 80s. You know? yeah. But the 80s were excess. Not only in the car world, I mean in clothing and, and drugs and music and I mean you name it. Absolutely, it, it, it was the age of excess. Yeah, uh, and so was that you know post-war boom of mm. of mid-century you know into the sixties. And you know if you know if you, if you if you just watch if you look at history a lot, you just see these pendulums. You know, mm-hmm. you see like the poor working class depression era thirties. And then that slowly swings up to the, the fifties, you know, TV dinners, TV dinner boom. And then it swings back to hippies living in vans in the sixties. And then it swings back to the eighties and you know, the new wave era. Right. And uh, those same hippies that were in the vans are now in a corporate setting and they've got a bad cocaine habit. Probably. Yeah. Or they're making Benny and Jerry's ice cream, right? <laughs> you know, or they're still following the dead around. But, uh, so I, I, I kind of just always felt that like, you know, if you stay, if you, if your interests just stay classic, just, just classy and classic. Test you, the time. You never have to go through these phases of having to change your life. <laughs> you know, I got to get rid of my wardrobe now. Yeah. You know, shoulder pads are out. <laughs> I, got, <laughs> oh I need goodness. a fatter tie now. Wow. So yeah, I just, I don't have time for, for trends. I just, I just stick with the tried and true Americana. Well, now, and the other thing too, Bobby, is that the speed equipment industry was born in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, Escandarian, Miller, uh, the list goes on and on. Edelbrock. Yeah, Edelbrock. I mean, you, you know. name it. And what an industry it became. I mean, look at SEMA nowadays. It's, it's a massive, massive industry. Of course, there's good and bad to that because I think the industry kind of ate itself. Um, you know, the Street Rotter, for instance, uh, Street Rotter magazine, you know, it, it was, it was, uh, vicious cycle it was like well we're going to feature cars that have a lot of our advertisers parts on them and vice versa so it just becomes this this circle and then you know of course then you're influencing you know people to build these cars and then you know 10 years later pull the rug out from under them (laughs) now it's all about traditional rods sorry (laughs) well you told us a little bit about old crow your billy tank racer but uh, let's talk about racing itself. And mainly we're talking about at El Mirage Dry Lake, right? And yeah. At, and at Bonneville. Bonneville Soft Flats, yeah. Walk us through that experience. I, so I think my racing uh, progression, I guess you'd call it, uh, has kind of always been a sense to recreate. Like, man, I, I, you know, you look at pictures from the earliest days of drag racing. You know, guys... Who were out on the, on the aircraft drag strip or something like that. No helmets, no roll cages, none of that stuff. Like, whoa, wow, I wonder what that was like, you know? So then I think one of the first things I ever did was go to the, uh, Antique Nationals, uh, which was a drag race for guys who just had hot rods or motorcycles. Uh, and it was just about like, see what your car will do, you know? And you didn't need much. You just needed a lap belt and a helmet. And that's, and so that really was a lot of fun, just doing just fun little drag racing. And so like anything, like me, 
you know, who's kind of like obsessive and, and a workaholic, and a, you know, perfectionist. Like I want to just keep pushing whatever it is I do, push myself, keep pushing myself to do more and more. Um, and so after drag racing a bunch, it's kind of like, well, what, what else, what's next? What's, you know, what else did these guys do? You know, and you start and you, you meet some of these old guys who are like, well, you know, before drag racing, we were, we'd go out to the desert and we'd drive for a mile as fast as we could go. And you're like, really? You know, and then they say, yeah, these guys are still doing it. Why don't you come with me next Sunday? And so that's kind of how it started. Gotcha. Um, a guy named Tom Evans and a guy named Julian Doty were kind of my mentors. And so go out to El Mirage. It was still happening. You know, these guys were still doing it. I think there was uh, Muroc Dry Lake, which is now Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, they had a reunion because uh, Muroc had been shut down since like World War II. Right. But they had a couple of reunions in the 90s. So you went out to that and you see these guys that are still racing. And so that got me really hooked. And, um, but being the traditionalist I am, I saw that most of the cars that were racing and even the guys that had started in the forties and were still racing, were racing different cars. They were racing way more modern because to them, and rightly so, their entire life goal was to go faster and faster. Um, so they would stretch their car and shrink their car and make tight, you know, get smaller wheels and tires for their car and what, and all the things it took to make that car faster. But, you know, I, to me, I was a nostalgic, you know, lover. And so I'm looking at the old uh, books, the old black and white photos of these same guys when they're like 19 years old and it's just a bone stock stripped down, you know, 29 roadster or a belly tank. A belly tank was kind of like the quintessential uh, land speed car of uh, early post-war era. Um, so I, I didn't necessarily want to just jump on board with what those older guys were doing because they've been doing it their whole life. I kind of wanted to start back where they started and see what, what, what was that like? What was it like to take uh, a, a car that's primarily f- stock Ford parts, uh, nothing modern, and, and make it go as fast as possible. And what's neat about it is, is there's SCTA books that have the records of what these guys did. Uh, so you could look in 1948 and see what a guy running a Model A engine with an overhead valve conversion, um, it, with this type of body style, you see his, what speed he did. And it was only short-lived because then the, the V8 flathead came out. So everyone jumped over to that to go faster. And then the Chevy came out. Everyone jumped to that to go faster. 331 CAD. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then Hemis. the Hemis. Then the Hemis right. came along. Yeah. And then they started drag racing on the strip. But So I would look at records from 1948. Uh, say, okay, this belly tank had this motor, this thing, this thing. I want to try to beat that. You know what I mean? Like pick sure. up where they left off and try to go faster. And we did. We did. I, you know, Me and my friends did it. Yeah. So that's the fun part of it. What's your record speed in the Old Crow? Old Crow fastest run at Bonneville was 168. Wow. Which doesn't sound like a lot because, you know, I could go buy a 350 Chevy and throw it in there and probably do 200 miles an hour right out the gate. But it really wasn't about that. It was about doing as fast as you could go with technology from 1948. That's what it was about. So it was a, <laughs> 168 was a hell of a lot of work. 
<laughs> I believe it. <laughs> we did uh, a lot to that motor to get it together. Now, that's a you said that's a Model A four cylinder. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a 32 Ford four cylinder. Top speed of that car when it was brand new was probably maybe 60 miles an hour downhill, um, maybe 65. So, you know, you have to take that block. You have to put a better crank in it, uh, add some main caps. We put an overhead cam conversion on it, uh, which they were doing. They were doing back in the 30s. Right. Uh, Supercharge it, put a blower on it. In uh, fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think Louis Chevrolet was building speed equipment for those engines after he left Chevrolet. Yeah, he was he's he was building the Frontenac. Frontenac. Uh, That's right. Those that was speed equipment for the Model T blocks. So okay, Model T. We're okay. talking, you know, late teens. Right. Um, and the Frontenac was a, a, quite an engine. You know, double overhead cam. Uh, you know, eight valve or sixteen valve right. deals. That's the same stuff Miller was messing with. Right. You know, th- that this that's like rocket science for the nineteen twenties. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To your average hot rodder, I mean, that was some crazy stuff. I mean, because e- even the hot rodders, even the kids in the in the forties, even fifties, they weren't messing around with the kind of technology that the guys in the twenties were doing, like Harry Miller, like the Front Tanak brothers. There ain't no slacking when you're front and acting was the slogan, which is pretty good, yeah, right? But th- but th- but we're talking about high dollar stuff. We're talking about the Bugatti of America stuff. Um, so of course your average teenager uh, coming out of World War II didn't have you know access to that type of thing, even even years later. Um, but America was kind of running you know alongside uh, slightly behind europe in the early days of racing europe really ruled racing and and in europe racing was a rich guy's hobby um so major advancements were created because they had the money to do it um and it wasn't until a little later in the U.S. that guys started having the money. A lot of guys here in Los Angeles had the money to spend. So there was a guy named Harry Miller, and he started out building carburetors. He had a shop in Los Angeles building carbs. And then he got into repairing race engines and trying to make race engines for guys. And he was making kind of what... Other guys in the U.S. were making at the time really large four cylinders, maybe six cylinders, eight cylinders, really big, massive things. Uh, T heads, uh, flat heads, that's that type of deal. Um, and so it just happened that around, uh, I don't know, 1914, 1915, uh, Peugeot from France, sent some race cars over to the US. They they competed in Indy, they competed in some of the tracks, you know, Beverly Hills, Culver City, the board tracks. And they were they were going real fast. And they had what basically is the same geometry as engines today, double overhead cam, 16 valve, straight 8 engines. Um and we didn't have those yet. And so one of them happened to break here in LA and uh, got sent to 
Miller's shop to repair. And so luckily Harry, Harry Miller got a hold of it for a year or two uh, to fix it. So he basically just took it apart, saw the technology that was being used and said, we can do this. And that's what they did. So Harry Miller came out uh, with a 183 cubic inch uh, double overhead cam, 16 valve, straight eight race engine. You know, the the greatest engine of all time for the era. Talking late teens, early 20s. At that time, Duesenberg was dominating the oval tracks, uh, Indy, and, and competing with the European uh, guys that were coming over. Uh, but once Miller got into the game, and once he perfected his engines, say in the early 20s, he was dominating Indy um, and did for decades. Uh, he retired uh, and passed the shop on to his foreman, which was Fred Offenhauser. And, uh, you know, later on into the 30s, they came to realize that four cylinders worked better than eight. Uh, you could get the same horsepower, if not more, out of a more compact, less weight type of deal. More more bang for the buck, so to speak. So uh, four cylinders became all the rage in the 30s. And then Fred Offenhauser created the Offy motor, which we now know is, uh, as the Offy. But it was really the Miller or, or the Peugeot, depending on who you want to give the credit to. Um, and so Offy dominated Indy up until the 80s. It's incredible it's totally nuts yeah yeah until the ford you know cosworth and type motors came out and that changed the game but up until then this this aluminum four banger uh dominated american racing which is pretty neat yeah it is absolutely astounding that engine was in nearly every car Mm -hmm. that ran at indy yeah it really was with with you know some notable exceptions here and there but it was that good the engineering was that sound. It was that, I guess, flexible, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was just finely tuned. It was pretty, They had reached perfection with that engine, yeah. you know? And they kept, they kept advancing it forward. They turbocharged it uh, later into the 70s and kept going faster and faster. And, yeah. uh, but that's, you know, that is the, you know, the Rolls Royce of American racing, you know, and so, and I got really fascinated by that history because like I said, progression, you know, if you live a life of progression, which I do, which always trying to achieve the next thing or achieve or, or learn more or dive deeper into what you want to know about, then uh, eventually as an automotive connoisseur, you're going to, you're going to, head back to the early days of American racing. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because that's really, we've come so far in 120 years, 125 years. And yet much of the technology that we're talking about was developed in the first 20 years of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Yep. So true. And only com- only thing different is computers. Yeah. You know, that's, that's changed, you know, valve timings and, right. and, carb richness and whatnot but other than that it's you're dealing with the same geometry and and so i wanted to kind of share those stories with people and capture the history of it and that was that was the whole point of starting the podcast and doing these interviews and and learning from people like you and um absolutely 
And there's so many rabbit holes. Oh, that, that's the beauty of it. I mean, there, there's so many rabbit holes to explore. Yeah. You know, and in just American racing, forget about getting into European racing, you yeah. know. But even just, you know, lately I've been really getting fascinated by the early 50s uh, road racing of California, mm-hmm. you know, because that's, that's a whole nother massive rabbit hole to go down. Right, and it's not just the Pebble Beach road race. No, no, that was just happened to be one of them. Right, only you know, it was only for a few years. Right, but there were road races everywhere around California. It was the big thing to go see. Which brings us to the spider. I think you wanted to talk about the poor spider that I found in the, yeah. in the shipping container. Yeah, right, and how that came about. Yeah. Um, that so that's one of the probably the most exciting thing that happened to me last year was was finding this Porsche spider because you know this is a multi-million dollar car um one of the reasons that i found this car is because of my interest in so many different things like motorcycles is obviously a big interest of mine i've had a lot of fun with vintage bikes um so my and so is my my buddy Grant. He's a hardcore you know a bike guy. He puts on Born Free that that great show. So he he heard about some old motorcycles for sale, and he went up to this guy's house and to look at the, you know to look at these bikes. And so I get a call from him one day, and he's like, "Hey, do you know anything about Porsches?" And I'm like, "A little. I know a little. I don't know a lot." He's like. Because the fam- there's a bunch of bikes here. I'm going to buy some of these bikes, but the family's got this car and they want to sell it too. I said, well, I'll come up and take a look. And uh, he had said, poor spider. Uh, and so I just assumed it was one of the fiberglass copies made in the 80s or 90s, right? Because those are really the only ones you really ever stumble on. Um, so I was going up there to I expecting to find a fiberglass, you know, spider. And so I get up there and uh, start talking to the family. And, and, you know, the more I start talking to the family, I realize, well, this is, this isn't just a, a, a copy. Car. No. I mean, he, you know, he had a, a photo album, you know, of getting the car in the early sixties, oh you know, and I'm like, okay, well, let's go look at it. Cause I figured, well, maybe it had been hacked up really bad or, you know, some Corvair engine stuffed in it. Who knows? Yeah, right? because it sounds too good to be true. Yeah, exactly. Right. So we and and we're we're up on this hill in Orange County that no one in their right mind would drive up to. This crazy steep road, and th- the only reason you use the road is to it's a service road for some radio tower who's <laughs> at the top of the hill. He just happens to own property next to it. And they the family had built this weird, funky little house in the forties neat place and uh he was a porsche guy early on and he had a 904 he had a speedster uh then he, in, after the 80s he got into motorcycles and he kind of you know like put the porsches aside and, and he put this spider in a shipping container in the back of the house overlooking a cliff <laughs> and i think it was for security sure. i think it was like okay no one's gonna steal this thing um, and that was it. And then he passed away and the, you know, the family goes up and then they need to sell everything. And so I get up there and I, I looking at this car and I'm like, it's, it's aluminum. It's not fiberglass. It's got a four cam 
racing engine in it. Um, I'm like, I think this is a real thing. And we started going through the photo album and there's like letters from Porsche back in the sixties talking about the car he has and really fascinating. And so, um, I, at that point, obviously the family knew what it was worth. So I had no expectation whatsoever of getting it for myself, which would have been great, but no chance. Um, so I really wanted to be the person to sell it for the family because the family was like, hey, whoever sells this car first, first person to show up with this much money can take the car. And I'm like, I, I got to I gotta find a buyer for this, you know, because I'm like one of those uh, orphan uh, leaders. Like I just, I got to find homes for all these cool things, right. all these orphaned uh, antiques. Um, so... I, I, I had a friend that I knew, knew a lot about rare Porsches and I gave him a call. Uh, and he happened to be in town because he lives in another state. And we went up there and got together and we made one phone call and got the car sold. Oh, I, like I, I don't doubt it. I mean, that's a holy grail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely a holy grail. So, mm. and, and for someone like me, as, as deep into cars as I am and passionate about cars as I am, I, those things never go through my hands, you know, guys like me, they go through Gooding and Bonhams and, uh, you know, yeah. Sotheby's and that type of thing. So I, I felt very accomplished in a weird way to get to, to sell this car. And I also, I also had, I, I can't, I can't call it seller's remorse because, uh, I, it wasn't my car to sell, but I did, I did feel depressed for a few days because I had spent so much time with the car. You know, mm-hmm. many days going up there, rolling it out, rolling it in, pictures. We took some video, sitting in it, getting to know uh, a car th- that rare, uh, and then having to see it go away in a trailer. I was actually yeah. a little depressed. It was the weirdest thing. I never thought I'd feel that way. But I felt really bummed. That doesn't surprise me because you were developing an emotional connection to the car. Yes, yes. Yeah, inadvertently. Yeah. And, you know, things like that have spirits. Yeah. Old buildings have spirits. Objects of desire have spirits and, mm-hmm. and, and ghosts. And I feel like I've always been very sensitive to picking up those things and like maybe in a weird way communicating with them. Yeah. Completely. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not talking hocus pocus here. I just mean, I, you know, I feel like these older spirits see me as, as an old soul and, and know that I'm going to, kind of take care of them, you know, which, which I try to do. Yeah. There is something to that sense of channeling the past and the former caretakers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One yeah. good example of that, um, the bowling alley. Yeah. Let's talk about the bowling alley because it looks amazing. Thanks. 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 Well, I can't take all the credit because I mean, this place was built in 1927. Right. I just took it back to, to, you know, it's true nature, really. It had been remodeled over so many years. There were layers and layers. There were two layers of drop ceiling. There were walls built. I mean, it was it was completely covered from the original surfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was just able to strip it all back and kind of restore the parts that needed to be restored. Um, so I just let it shine. Uh, 
and I had a guy working. He was a glass and metal guy. He was working there for like a month or so. And I remember he came up to me one day and he said, you know, there's a lot of ghosts here. And I was like, really? He's like, yes, there's a lot of ghosts here. And he's like, and they're all really happy what you're doing. <laughs> and I like totally got chills, you know? Yeah. And I was like, awesome. That's wow. great. That's like the greatest compliment ever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't care what anyone writes about this place. You, you know, having a ghost tell you this is great what you're doing. And it, it, may, it started maybe making me think like, you know, there's definitely places that are like haunted, like bad, not, not in a good way, you know? Um, but if you think about, you know, let's take the idea of your soul or, or, or where you would spend the afterlife, right? Most likely you're going to spend it somewhere you were having a lot of fun. You know, mm-hmm. maybe the bar you hung out at and party or the bowling alley you hung out mm-hmm. at. And so I, I kind of get the sense of when I'm doing a lot of these restoration projects that the spirits that are there are party spirits. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they yeah. just want to hang out and party and, and see their friends. <laughs> and so I, I'm just I'm just helping them do that. That's interesting. Now, if there was one guy who was building amazing cars and really a trailblazer in the early 20th century. It was Harry Miller. But there was a driver who was the top, the cream of the crop. And that was Barney Oldfield. Barney Oldfield. So Barney Oldfield started out, like many race car drivers, racing bicycles. Because that was the hot ticket before car racing, really, was these velodromes and these bicycle racing. And so he was one of those guys. Um, And... uh, so Henry Ford creates this big giant car, the 999. Funky looking thing. Nothing like any, you know, any Ford that ever came after that. Just a steer. It wasn't even a steering wheel. It was like this tiller rod thing. It was like a double tiller. Yes. Yeah. It was this, this thing with two handles and you do it. And so he wanted at the time, I think he wanted to go, he wanted to beat the Chevrolet brothers because they were making strides. Uh, and so he wanted to set up a race. So he needed to find a race car driver. Well, they didn't exist, right, at the time. So where do you look? You look, uh, so they was like, well, this guy's really fast on a bicycle. I bet he is a daredevil and he'll take this thing around. So that's what happened. So he found Barney Oldfield. And he was young at the time. And uh, he said, Barney, can, do you think you can pilot this thing and, and, and beat the, these guys? And he said, yeah, I think I can do that. And so he did. And so that that just launched Barney Oldfield into stardom. And now we're talking like 1904? Yeah, or, or 06 or 08. Right. It's real early. Yeah. It's real early. Um, and so Barney Oldfield is an overnight sensation, you know, and it, it goes to his head completely. I mean, the guy becomes a complete ham. He's a complete showman. You know, he's got a cigar. You never see a picture of him without a cigar in his mouth. Uh, he's got all these catchphrases, you know, uh, and and he's being written up in the papers constantly. He's breaking speed records. He's doing daredevil stunts. You know, he's he's racing a biplane or he's having the guy in the biplane 
uh, come down a ladder and hop in his car and they're doing, you know, all these funny, you know, he's traveling the country, you know, doing shows. And then he's racing, of course, because he kind of, you know, started racing and he's racing on dirt tracks and dirt roads and, and whatnot. So he became probably at the time the most famous race car driver, if not the most famous person in the entire country. I mean, you had Lindbergh, of course, uh, but and you had guys like that. And so this is way before television, uh, slightly a little bit of radio. But if you were on the front page of a paper nationwide, you were the famous person of the day at that time. Now, nowadays, you just end up in the trash can. But right. at the time, you were big. And so Barney Oldfield was big. And so I always liked Barney because uh, he was just a, sh- a showman. He was, he was, he made a lot of fun out of what he did, but he was also good. He like won a lot of races. He was a daredevil. And then later in his career, when he retired, he went into the bar business. So he owned bars around Los Angeles, several bars. So I kind of have this weird, you know, kinship with Barney Oldfield. And so he's buried in this Culver City Cemetery. And he raced, obviously, Culver City a lot before the board track was torn down. And so years ago, uh, I ended up getting a, a little bar in Culver City. And when faced with the task of what to do with it, I immediately thought Barney Oldfield. I want to do a little tribute to Barney Oldfield and tell the story, you know, to tell Barney's story to people who've never heard about Barney Oldfield. Right. So that's Oldfield's liquor room. Golden Submarine. The, yes. One of the one of the greatest cars ever built. Yeah. What do you know about that car? Cuz I I'll confess I don't know really anything about it. Well, it's a Miller car. Harry yeah. Miller built it. Right. And Harry Miller built it before he had uh this is back when those big giant motors I was talking about before he had created the du- double overhead cam mm-hmm. uh engine so it has a ginormous four cylinder in it it's big big hunk of aluminum and it was a very early attempt at streamlining it was an extremely early attempt at streamlining it was uh, a dangerous attempt at streamlining uh your ga- the gas tank of the of the golden sub was a round metal ball and it just sat behind the driver. And those cars were getting banged around a lot in the teens, you know, on these tracks, they were hitting each other, hitting walls. And so it caught on fire and Barney Oldfield was able to bail out of it, you know, with just a few burns on him but it was it was it was a death trap and i think barney oldfield even called it a death trap so it only had a good year's worth of racing in that streamlined full body incarnation and then the next year they cut the roof off (laughs) so you see like if you if you follow the photo timeline of it it's just it's that for the beautiful you know year maybe year and a half and then the roof's cut off and then it gets stripped down to basically nothing. And it, they kept racing it. Uh, and it slowly became not as successful because new engines were coming out every year. But that's the Golden Sub. And so there were s- small little remnants of the Golden Sub left. Uh, and a, a guy named Buck Bodeman back in the 80s had found a few of these remnants. And he built the full, the full car. A guy named Dan O'Davis down in Florida uh, owns it now. A great Miller collector. He's got a really nice collection. 
They're amazing cars. Mm-hmm. All, all doesn't matter which one. All Millers are just absolute gems. Well, they're each one's a work of art, yeah. handmade. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Geez, you know, Bugatti gets so much credit for some reason, and I think just because he made a lot more of them. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean they were better. Uh, Miller only built cars for special clients to go racing. He never built a passenger car to to, to buy on the market. Well, and he was doing crazy stuff like front-wheel drive mm-hmm. and, I think, inboard brakes. Yes. And and early hydraulic brakes, if I'm not mistaken. He was tinkering with that earlier than most. Yeah. He, uh, he, he advanced a lot of the technology. And the front-wheel drive thing around 1924-25 was really dominating Indy at the time. It was very proven to work. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating stuff. We should mention another venture that you've kind of started recently, which is kind of a vintage clothing line. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious about this because, you know, L.A. is a great place for vintage clothing. You know, the again, we're back to Hollywood with wardrobe departments and period costume. And um, so it, it seems like it, it's only natural, given your other interests, that you decide, yeah, I'm going to make some really authentic vintage clothing. Yeah, well, I think that, like my love of all things vintage, you know, I got into vintage clothing really early. Sure. You know, my first car was a 57 Chevy when I was 16. And to me, I kind of felt weird driving the car around without kind of, you know, fitting the look and feel of the car. Some Levi's and a T-shirt. Basically, yeah, a leather jacket and, and, uh, you know, kind of just time travel. With yeah. the car. I love the time travel. Any event I can go to or a moment, you know, even if it's just a fraction of a second mm-hmm. where it feels timeless, mm-hmm. that's kind of what I strive to do all the time. And so clothing kind of took off. You know, when, 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 uh, we finished the, uh, old crow belly tank, mm-hmm. my friend Coop, who was a really great artist, I was a big fan of his work. Uh, he wanted to do a logo for the car. So I said, awesome, let's do it. So he created this great crow smoking a, a cigarette and a top hat. And we made a t-shirt out of it. Cause when you go racing at Bonneville, you sell t-shirts and sure. it helps pay for the gas money. And, uh, they were a huge hit, you know, and we basically sold the exact same t-shirt for 20 years, you know, and it's still relevant today. People still love that design. Well, it's, Coop's artwork, original artwork, was just, it hit the spot. It just nailed it. Yeah, yeah. He had, there was a line quality to his work that really nails it. Um, and so, uh, you know, I don't really know anything about the clothing business, or I didn't. Um, and uh, uh, so I never really pursued that myself. But then I was approached by some friends. Hey, would you like to design the clothes and we'll make them? And I, the, now that's something that sounds great. I love designing things. And so that's how it turned out. It turned out I met these guys in Japan, and I was huge fans of their clothing already. They had a store in Harajuku, which is kind of like the the Hollywood or Melrose of, in Tokyo. of Tokyo. Yeah. And, you know, I went to Japan. I got invited to Japan 2013 with The Old Crow to show at the Moon Eyes show. And so uh, I, I had been to Japan once 
13 years prior and, and had a really neat experience, but I hadn't been back. So in 13, I go and, and I was blown away. I was exposed to this world of Japanese kids who are almost more into American vintage and Americana than I am. Like they went further down any rabbit hole than I ever went to, you know, with their funny? brand of denim and and color of denim. And I mean, they really got into it. And I, I just thought it was the coolest thing ever, you know, because anytime I meet someone else who is doing something to preserve Americana, like I'm really fascinated, you know, I instantly attracted to them. Sure. So I met all these like-minded people in Japan, and I thought this is just incredible. Uh, you know, and they're preserve—they're buying up the motorcycles and the cars, and they're preserving them so well. And they use them there, and they show them off, and they—they—they they, they get samples of old clothing, and they just completely make the most perfect replica of that clothing. So, you know, up until at that time, you know, if you wanted to dress you know, like your heroes dressed or, or, or just dressed better in general, usually you were buying vintage clothing. Sure. Because that's all there was. Because that's all there was. But suddenly you could buy a brand new piece of clothing that looked like exactly like, you know, a denim shirt built made in the 30s or 40s. Um, and a lot of that stuff didn't survive. A lot of that, what they call workwear, mm-hmm. uh, didn't really survive that well because it got ripped and torn and burned and, and, and tossed away because it was just for working. Um, and they were recreating it. And I just, I just loved it. And so when I got the, when they got the chance to work with them and give them inspiration, uh, because, you know, that the rabbit hole of clothing the Japanese got into was started with denim, started with Levi's and jeans, got into more workwear style clothing. But vintage racing wear has its own aesthetic uh, that they never really kind of touched too much base on. So I was kind of excited to get together with them and kind of expose them to that world. One of my favorite things, you look at the guys that were racing these indie cars in the 1920s. And they were literally wearing Argyle sweaters. <laughs> I know. They're cashmere. Like these, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't, you didn't really have much of the time. And then the mechanics had the jumpsuits, which always looked cool. Um, and you had these little caps. They didn't even have helmets, but yeah, you usually had a tie, a collared shirt, an Argyle sweater. And even the guys, these, these board track guys racing Indians, 100 plus miles an hour, with a striped sweater on. Yeah, <laughs> like a football jersey and, yeah. and uh, knee boots. Exactly. Yeah, jodfers and knee boots. Yeah. But man, these guys look friggin' cool. They did, you know, yeah. they, they look like the pilots. They were kind of emulating the, the World War I pilots at the time. And Definitely. those guys look way cool. Well, and for that matter, you know, Eddie Rickenbacker was, mm-hmm. was racing cars on the boards. Yes, yeah, and so, created his own car company. Yep. That's right. Which is short-lived, but yeah. So I was super excited. So um, we started Old Crow Clothing, and I, every season or twice a year, I just get to, you know, design uh, what I think, you know, I usually try to pick a theme for that year. Like we mm-hmm. did a nautical theme. We've done a board track theme. We've done a dry lakes theme. So I always try to just do something. It's just, it's just a fun extension of everything else that I do to kind of preserve history, tell a story, you know, keep Americana alive. Right. And obviously this is small production. 
Very small. Yeah, know? I think there's 10 stores. Yeah. Uh, and none, none in the U.S. We just started a website, though, yeah. uh, oldcrowclothing.com. So you can buy it. They'll ship it over from Japan. By the way, anything we mention, I'll put links in the show notes so people can just oh, good. click right on it. Yeah, that'd be yeah. good. That'd be awesome. It's easy that way. Mm-hmm. Um, Pebble Beach? Yes. Okay. So, sorry, was that, I bet that was hot. Uh, I was at Pebble. You, you and I saw each other at Pebble Beach mm-hmm. this year, and you guys were wearing the most amazing vintage, authentic style jumpsuits. Thanks. And you were there with a Miller race car. Yes. That was incredible. Yeah. You know, I had uh, never really been exposed to Pebble Beach much. Um, I knew some people who went every year and some people who showed, but I never really got a chance to go to to Pebble Beach because it's always the same time as Speed Week. Mm-hmm. So I'm usually always at Bonneville that year, so I can't do both. Um, and so I, I've taken a few years off of Bonneville because I've been so busy with some of the bar projects. So I, I got the chance to go, and there just happened to have a Miller class. Uh, it, it was supposed to be for 2020, which is obviously canceled. So I submitted my application, you know, I think at the end of 19. Uh, and, and luckily the car was accepted. Um, I'm so fortunate to, you know, have gotten in with the Miller crowd and I joined the Miller club and started doing vintage racing with the Miller club. And I was able to actually track down a real Miller race car. And it was Ralph De Palma's, uh, last race car, uh, of his career. So, uh, just extremely lucky, extremely rare thing to, to, to get. But I, it's one of my treasures. And so I was so happy to be able to show it off at Pebble Beach yeah. uh, with all the other amazing Millers that were there. And, I, you know, I really love Pebble. Yeah. And, and so, of course, we made, you know, we made these matching jumpsuits to match the car because that's just what you do. Sure. <laughs> At least that's the, in my mind, that's just what you do. I didn't want to wear a blazer and a yellow tie like everybody else, you know. So um, me and my crew and, and my wife, we uh, and the guys in Japan made them for us. And, and they did a great job. Uh, and, and you also had a vintage car carrier, which, what yeah. is it, a 40? It's a, four, it's a 40 Ford. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it started out as a fire truck and it, mm-hmm. it became a ramp truck. And yeah. uh, I, I, I had submitted it to them because, you know, I have a lot of photographs of guys in the 20s and 30s taking their Miller race car to go racing. And they're always on a transporter. Mm-hmm. They didn't just drive those cars. Right. And so I submitted pictures to the, the, the staff of Pebble Beach. And I said, hey, you know, I'd love to represent this i'd love to recreate this and i f for the tour and i think it would help tell the story of the miller race cars and they thought so too so i was really fortunate to be able to take the car on the carrier and do the tour and we had the miller sign and we had checkered flags and kind of made a show out of it you also last summer had the opportunity to run the car in milwaukee right Mm -hmm. At, at a miller meet that's right the miller meet the club gets together Everyone brings Millers. It's the only time of the year uh, you get to see Millers not only just running, but actually driving on a track. Yeah. And not driven gently, right? I mean, you guys... Yeah. I mean, we don't... I, You know, I wouldn't say anyone tries to blow their engine up because sure. these cars are so valuable. But, you know, I try to get out there and, and do, you know, 
75 and 90 miles an hour. Yeah. Because you want to you want to feel what they felt. What they felt. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Or really as close so. as you can to it. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So now that you're moved in here, things have kind of settled. Uh, what's going on next? I'm currently working on. I mean, outside of automotive, I guess I could say, uh, working on saving another famous LA icon. Uh, there was a hot dog stand called the Tail of the Pup, which was a giant hot dog, mm-hmm. and you would order, you know, in the window of the giant hot dog, and that was iconic. Not only 40s, 50s, 60s, it was iconic in my generation. I remember in 1980 seeing it. It was right on the sidewalk. It wasn't tucked away anywhere. So if you drove around L.A., you saw it. It was right in your face. And you couldn't not see it. It's a giant hot dog. Wasn't it on Beverly Boulevard? It was La Cienega Beverly. Okay. Yeah. It was there before the Beverly Center. But it was it was a programmatic architecture building, but it was one of the longest lasting uh, and and thriving. You know, the barrel, the idle hour barrel was shuttered for 35 years. But uh, the hot dog was a working, working hot dog up until 2005 and the owners passed away. Uh, and but luckily the kids put it in storage. They knew the building you know, was significant, was significant. And they put it in storage and it finally found its way to us. Um, now that we are the caretakers of LA history and the restorers of artifacts, uh, people call us now. So we're in construction now, uh, a great location in Hollywood, close to the original location. Uh, so that's in the works now, as far as automotive goes, what's next, you know, we will get back to Bonneville. Uh, we will pick up where we left off there. And I have a few more Miller race cars uh, in being built and in the works. Wow, that's so, exciting. Yeah, and we're, and we're working on this 27 Stutz uh, boat tail speedster. Yep. Um, you know, and I completely, I broke my rule. I had a, you know, my first car was a 57 Chevy, which would break down all the time. And, and after I got rid of that car and I, and I, I got into a, a, a hot rod, I built a hot rod. I, I made a rule. I said, I'm not going to own a car again unless I can push it myself. You know, if I can, even if I can only push it 20 feet myself, if I can't, I don't want to own it. But this, this Stutz, of course, completely broke that rule. It, it takes like four people to push this oh, Stutz. Yeah. It, it, it is so heavy. It's a big car. It's a behemoth. It's not that long, but it's just every every uh, piece of metal, the, the the gauge on it, and the yeah. it's, it's a hefty car. And the scale of it, everything on it is just larger, mm-hmm. you know, almost like a truck. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 big and heavy. It's a cool car. Well, yeah. you got your hands full, Bobby. Yeah, yeah, always something to do. Thanks for having us today. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, follow the podcast, leave me five stars and a quick review, and you can support my work over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash hpheritage. And you can contribute as little as $2. That's always appreciated. Thank you guys for showing me the love over there. And until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.